You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. I recently had the privilege of writing an endorsement for a book I'm very excited about, and here's what I said in my endorsement. Quote, in the weekly historian, 52 Reflections on Church History, Dr. Michael Haken agrees with the 18th century Baptist leader, Caleb Evans, that, quote, every Christian ought to be a good historian, end quote. This book will help. While not an exhaustive survey, the weekly historian is a trusted guide into some of the most important people and events of church history. Haken's expertise allows him to do fine history and accessible snapshots that will spur the reader on to further study and a deeper appreciation for the Christian's shared history, a most noble enterprise. Well, that's what I wrote for this book, The Weekly Historian, and I really believe that. This is a most noble exercise. And Dr. Michael Haken, here we are kicking off the new year with our first episode of Bead. And I didn't have to beg you, but I, I pled with you to let us feature your new book. This is your latest offering, The Weekly Historian. And picking up on that quote by Caleb Evans, I wanted to ask you by way of introduction to this program, uh, why should every Christian be a good historian? Why is that so important? Well, history is the fabric uh, in which we kind of live out our lives and bear our witness. Um, history is very, very important, uh, not only to us in terms of um, the, the stage, if you want to des describe it that way, or the context or the scene in which our lives are lived, but it's also very important to God. And contrary to, you know, uh, Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, where history doesn't matter at all, and history actually is something that you need to flee from, um, in the biblical understanding, and this is very clear in Judaism and Christianity, history is the, is the context in which God has wrought salvation, salvation for his people in the Old Testament, of which the, the great example is the Exodus, uh, God bringing his people by, by signs and wonders and by his grace out of Egypt, planting them in the promised land, and so preparing uh, Israel really to be kind of the womb for the Messiah. And then in the New Testament, the great story that revolves around uh, God coming into history. Um, if history is of no importance to God, why does he, why does he enter into the fabric of space and time and assume uh, humanity, full humanity, and uh, live and minister and then die and be uh, raised again in the context of history? Um, and of course, we'll come, we'll again, come again in history. But go ahead. Exactly. So history is not only important to us to understand who we are, but it's also important as a Christian. Uh, if God takes history this seriously, then we must. And uh, if history is the context in which he has brought about the work of salvation, uh, contrary to uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, or even within the Christian sphere, 
the the fight against Gnosticism in the second century. Gnosticism was a flight from history as well. And uh, contrary to these, the Orthodox Christians' uh, creeds and theology and church have confessed the importance of history down through the years. You know, in the, both the um, Nicene and uh, Apostles' Creed, we talk about Christ suffering under Pontius Pilate. And that roots the gospel in the fabric of space and time, that this took place during the, uh, the very time when uh, Pilate was the governor of Judea. And um, it, it locates it in a distinct, particular historical context. And so every Christian then, in one sense, should be interested in history. And um, it's like being interested in your family. Oh, uh, where did mm. I come from? You know, who are my parents, my grandparents? Michael, that's so significant. What our listeners uh, maybe didn't think about before you've just said all this is, is there is a biblical theological rationale for being a historian. And so you're rooting this in something far more than just being interested in historical tidbits or facts from history. You're saying there's a biblical theological mm -hmm. rationale. We need to look at how, how God as Lord of history has entered into history at pivotal times, not you know, least of which with the incarnation. Uh, so it's good to be a historian. And in fact, it's more than good. It would be required mm -hmm. of us. Yeah, very uh, much so. When you said a couple things there too, Michael, we're going to have, I'm, I'm writing in my mind uh, episodes we need to do in the new year. You mentioned Gnosticism. That's a real departure from history. Uh, in so many ways, I feel like we're seeing uh, kind of a neo-Gnosticism in our day, uh, maybe just giving more importance to what we're doing here, but but let, we'll come back to that. And I wanted to ask you about this. When you ground our understanding of history in not only the Exodus, but but then as you sped us forward to the New Testament and the coming of Christ into the world, isn't it interesting that at least until recently, uh, most of the world marked history in BC and AD? And I know that's changing now. We're not doing it. We've got common era and, you know, what is it? Yeah, CE -E and BCE. But even <laughs> see, even CE and BCE is basically BC and AD. They just talk to right? Because right. they, they, they take the marker, yeah. so to speak, zero. And BCE mm -hmm. is what, what used to be called BC. And now AD has become uh, um, CE. But it's still, it's still basically mm -hmm. Y zero. You know, why, 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 right. you know, but basically what you know, the answer is that was the birth of Christ. Well, you know, right. why not the foundation of the Roman Empire? Why not uh, Muhammad on the, um, the uh, you know, when he takes the, uh, the trip from uh, Mecca to Medina, which is where Muslims count history from? Um, why not the fall of Rome? Uh, why not the foundation of the mm. American Republic? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's. Well, be, it, even if you yeah. say it's you know that all they've done is gotten away from calling naming jesus so it's uh, before the common era right. the common era whereas before it was before christ in the year of our lord anno domini so hmm. well i love again that you wrote this book and again for our listeners the weekly historian 52 reflections on church history and the weekly historian then 52 what's why why is it called that why 52 well it's 52 weeks in a year <laughs> that's right yeah. okay so we're trying to help yeah. people in a year become good historians yeah so, so like yeah ideally you know yeah. each of the each of the uh sections is about 
two pages max, maybe three max. And so you can read it in five, 10 minutes. And so I'm, I'm thinking ideally you should, you know, you could tack it onto your daily devotions and just read a little snippet, uh, maybe to prepare yourself for uh, reading the word and uh, prayer or maybe after as application as it were. But um, yeah, the idea is that you read this and hopefully for people who've never really shown much interest in history, maybe it'll whet their appetite. And for others, it'll expose them to people they may never have heard of. And um, so. I think it'll do both, Michael. I mean, you're such a master storyteller. And I mean that. I, I love reading your works of church history because you bring church history alive. I know we've talked about it before on this uh, program or on, on, on Bead, on, on this podcast, but church history is, well, history is really resurrecting the dead and helping them speak to our time or speak to our day. Uh, you do that so well, and this book's going to help people hear from the past in, in a way that's engaging and encouraging. And I think you're right, will whet their appetite for more. Um, and, and let me just agree with you and for our, for our audience, these are so accessible, these chapters. And so do pick up the book because it won't overwhelm you. These are very accessible snapshots into church history that will, I trust, spur you on to, to want to read more, maybe in these particular areas that you bring up or maybe in related ones. Uh, well, Michael, I, I wanted to ask you if there was uh, a particular uh, story or chapter that stood out to you the most, or even before that, how did you even go about the selection process? I mean, here you have 52 selections. Uh, I mean, you prayed about it, obviously you're prayerfully thinking about it, maybe picking up on some work you've done in the past, but why, why these yeah, 52? How very good go question. Um, well, I had, I had a lot of them ready at hand because, uh, for the past five years, I've been, I've had a monthly column in the uh, British magazine or British newspaper called uh, Evangelicals Now, EN. And so um, I realized uh, this um, past year, you know, five years monthly. So I, I had 60, 60 of these entries. And then um, I had done a number of things, uh, you know, before, um, you know, when the, uh, the kind of blogging became kind of a fashion i had a thing called historia ecclesiastica which is a takeoff of uh, beads uh, church history and i had done some columns there and so um these then come from mostly from my en uh monthly column but there are a few from the historia ecclesiastica which is going back a number of years and then uh, there was at least one or two from uh ligonier's table talk which is a great little devotional tool and so i had a variety of places that i could draw them from um not all of, i basically followed the chronology of church history so we begin with the new testament and we've got a couple on new testament for instance um uh, i've got one called a frantic passion for purple which is a pickup of a quote about uh, the way people in the roman empire were just mad about purple clothing at least the ones who are the uh, the wealthy elite and it basically is the story of Lydia, but the backstory of Lydia, what, what does it mean when it says she's a seller of purple? And I just asked the question. So what, what did that entail for her? Um, it meant she was dealing with extremely wealthy clients. You know, you think of some of the glitterati of our day. Well, that, that, that's the sort of person that she was dealing with because only those people could afford purple. 
And um, so then I, you know, I worked through the Church Fathers. I've got a few on the Middle Ages, uh, much more on the Church Fathers, because that has been an area that I know well. Um, Reformation. I noticed you gave two, two chapters to Bede. Way to go. Yeah. I mean, well, the name I, of our podcast. You, yeah. You can't just do one chapter on Bede. We've got two there. I love yeah, that. we got two on Bede. And then uh, <clears throat> the Reformation um, figured quite largely, and partly because uh, the lead up to the Reformation, the, the um, quincentennial of the Reformation in uh, 2016 and then 2017, the celebration, I wrote a lot on the Reformation. And in fact, EN, I think it was 2018, they wanted a whole year just on reformers. So there's stuff on uh, the Anabaptists and Tyndale and Luther and Calvin. Uh, Catherine Willoughby. So there are women in here as well. I, I wanted to make sure that there were women represented, not only Lydia at the beginning, but mm -hmm. uh, people like uh, Catherine Willoughby, um, Anne Steele. <clears throat> uh, Margaret Baxter. Margaret I noticed you have a Puritan wife yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a little bit on the Puritans. Um, there's a lot more I could have said on the Puritans, obviously, and I've written a lot on the Puritans, but they're not really well represented. And I, my thinking was, hey, if I did a second, you know, one next year, um, I could bring them in at that point. And uh, a lot of 18th century. Uh, the book actually, I think, reflects my own historical foci, uh, the ancient mm -hmm. church, um, 18th century revivals, and then um, only one in the 20th century. It's got to do with the planting of a church in uh, Toronto in uh, 1919. Uh, four. And that caught my attention. I first saw that. And obviously, you being a Canadian, I mean, you uh, can can speak on that, not, not only as a historian, but one who uh, from the region. Is that fair to say? I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. It. Toronto's just down the road, so to speak. And I actually, and not that you were alive in 1919. That's not what I'm implying at all. No, no. And I was actually I was actually <laughs> asked to um, to write the uh, centennial book of the, the church. One of the things I have done, I've done about a dozen of these, is church histories, local church histories. Hmm. And I can't show the readers uh, the book, obviously, but um, uh, I spent about a year researching it. Um, had a couple of colleagues help. And, uh, and then uh, it's very popular. Just tells the church, again, it's, it's a way of encouraging people not only to be interested in the big picture of church history, but their own local church. You know, people walk into their local churches and they they really don't think about, like, who planted this church? You know, I, I, I know you're you're involved uh, in Louisville. Which church are you involved in? My I actually am an interim right now at a Lewisport Baptist Church, which is uh, toward Owensboro, Kentucky. Yeah. If you, you might yeah. not be familiar with that. I, area I know Owensboro. Yeah. 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 So close to there. I I drive out there each week. How long? Yeah. Wonderful there? people out there. It's about an hour and 20, hour and 20 minutes okay, each yeah, way. Okay, because Owensboro is about two hours, right? So you're about 40 minutes mm -hmm. out of Owensboro. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, won't, I, <laughs> I won't ask you to answer the following. I mean, like, when was that church planted? Uh, who founded it? Uh, what, were, yeah. what were they thinking about? And how long has it been going? What's the history of the church? And those are important yeah. questions. And people people come into churches, and they, 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 they don't realize that others have labored, as Jesus said, and they have entered into the harvest. Michael, I love that. We need to have more institutional histories. We do. And yeah. I mean, church histories like that. I mean, of course, to tell those stories, we'll be telling 
we'll be doing biography yeah. in, in so many ways. Yeah. But the idea of institutional histories, what are the histories of these churches? Someone needs to take these up and write them. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the, I mean, the Weekly Historian mostly picks up people that people would know. I've, I've got some here. For instance, one of my favorite chapters is chapter nine, uh, the friendship mm-hmm. of Basil of Caesarea and a man named Eusebius of Samosata. And so if you Google Eusebius of Samosata, you'd come up with very, very small snippets about who he is. And even in the big, you know, the big patristic dictionaries I've got um, or lexicons, I mean, he he merits a notice, but it's very, very small um, in terms of um, written material. I think we've got one little thing by him and it's it's kind of a creedal statement that was signed by him and someone else. Um, what we do have are 19 letters of Basil to Eusebius. And we don't have any of letters from Eusebius to Basil. And he was about a generation that are older than Basil. He was born probably around 315. Um, he was a bishop of Samosata. He was exiled for his faith in the risen Christ, uh, the, well, the deity of Christ. And, um, but uh, he, was, um, he was active in the kind of Syriac border with the Roman Empire. Uh, Samosata is r- right there in what is now modern Syria, and it was on the border of the empire. Very important trading place, uh, administrative Roman administration. And um, he, uh, he came to Basil's ordination as bishop, and it took him about a week and a half to get there, probably a bit longer. A bit of an arduous journey, and that developed their friendship. And uh, it Basil really needed that friendship through the three seventies because he found himself caught in a vicious controversy over uh, the confession of the the deity of the Holy Spirit. There are some controversies that really, you know, it's sad what Christians can fight about. But there are some controversies where, man, this this is this is something we've got to die for. And Basil found that this controversy over the deity of the spirit, which is a controversy we got, you know, it's it's a hill to die on, most definitely. Yes. It yes. destroyed uh, a number of his friendships, men who did not see that they had to confess the deity of the spirit. Uh, it's hard to believe. Uh, their argument was, well, is it biblical? Show us, show us exactly where the epithet God or Theos in Greek is used of the spirit, they argued. And during that controversy, Eusebius of Samosata was was absolutely steadfast as a friend. And um, Basil said, you know, in the midst of all the turmoil, he said, it's like when I go to the countryside to rest my eyes and I look on the green vegetation and the blue sky. He said, getting a letter from you is like that. It refreshes my soul. Because of the distance of Samosata from where Basil was in Caesarea, in the heart of modern Turkey, it wasn't easy for the men to, to, to see each other. But Basil said, you know, just getting a letter from you is so encouraging to me. And so Basil writes the, the, one of the definitive books on the deity of the Holy Spirit. I think before I got into looking at this in fact i did my doctoral thesis on this and i didn't really i don't think i named eusebius in my doctoral thesis maybe maybe once i didn't realize that supporting basil was was eusebius basil basil said um you're like moses i'm in the battle raging down below and you're on the mountaintop with your your arms lifted up praying to me as i I write this write this book and Hmm. 
I, I'm not sure why I started reading these letters. It was about probably about 10 years ago. And I realized I have mi I missed something. I thought I knew the controversy and I, I knew Basil's argument very well. But what I didn't know was the backstory that there was a friend whom nobody remembers now, didn't leave anything written, but that book wouldn't have been written without his prayers and his encouragement. Basil would have, would have, would, would probably have, have, have never gotten around to writing it because of the, just the distress of the friendships that were broken. And it's that book that leads to the foundation of the, um, the deity of the Holy Spirit being expressed in the Nicene Creed in the wow. uh, third article. Michael, this is fascinating. These are the kind of things people are going to get from your book. I mean, stories like this. I mean, it's no small thing to say that orthodoxy, we could argue, won the day because of friend because of a friendship. Yeah. In many ways. I mean, we could at least say a, a strong contributing Amen. factor yeah. to Basil doing the work he did. There was a dear friend behind yeah. him. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And and that also highlights another part of just your work, your your work in history has been so much in the letters, right? You're finding these things from letters. Yeah, I love letters. And that, I, I love mean, collections to our, of letters. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what historians to our future with <laughs> with email. Well, well, I know there's now just way more to go through. I mean, the well, archive well, I, is just getting I, bigger. That's assuming we'll be able to access it. Well, true. You know, true. Yeah. Oh, you're raising questions. Yeah. I don't know. But to our young aspiring historians out there, uh, mine the letters, get into the letters, get into the, um, the, the, the things, as you said, Michael, behind the scenes that are playing no small part in major or could we say massive uh, issues of orthodoxy in church history, uh, the establishing of it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you, you brought up another thing. And if we could, again, applicational history here. Here you are going back to the 370s, as you said, and we're seeing something, as you say, worth dying for, worth fighting for, as that relates to today. I mean, there's a lot of things evangelicals are fighting about that are not on par with the deity of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that might be the understatement of the night. Yeah. Uh, and so your book, uh, The Weekly Historian, can help just recalibrate our thinking in terms of what's worth fighting about. Uh, and there are things, let's be clear. I mean, you have a chapter in here called why we still need to remember the reformation. And yeah, I mean, there are things worth fighting for contending for. There is a faith once delivered to the saints. We need to contend for, but we find ourselves contending for, for things. Uh, I want to be charitable. Let's just say lesser things. Yeah. Yeah, history can help us there. Yeah, history can help us enormously here because it, it does highlight the things that are worth uh, that are primary and secondary issues, um, and it shows us what happens when tertiary issues become the focal point of controversy, as they all too frequently do, and it it uh, it destroys your witness. It brings it brings leanness to the soul, and um, it it creates it creates. Um, men who like fighting yeah. and I, I fear we're moving back into that sort of world again it, you know fighting fundamentalism which i don't talk about in the book but i've done some work on it in the uh, as it relates to ontario um hmm. men who are it, it seemed like once they had you know fought the liberals then they had every year there had to be something 
there was always yeah. a controversy. And because a man who has learned to engage in war, he doesn't know when to put his weapons down. And when, when there is peace is declared, you know, now he turns on his brethren. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a pit bull that's trained as an attack dog and they're dangerous. Very dangerous, Michael. And they, they, everyone's the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what can happen. Uh, and you, you mentioned people that can excel maybe in, in wartime. Can they, can they lead in peace? times of peace. It's rare. Sometimes people can't make that, yep. that pivot into a time of peace. Yep. And so you manufacture fights. Uh, now I hope no, nobody listening is going to hear you and me saying, again, there aren't things to contend for in our day. There absolutely are. Yeah. As you said, yeah. there's a chapter in here, why we need the ref, why we need to remember yeah. the reformation. Uh, the reformation was absolutely central. If we want, one hates to think what, what would have happened if there had been no reformation. Um, the Reformation recovered the gospel. Mm. And um, so, and um, uh, the uh, chapter 26, uh, the loss of land and life, I'll reckon slight. It's the, it's the word testimony of uh, William Tyndale for translating the Bible. He was willing to die okay. for that. And uh, mm. the scriptures are that important. And they, should, they were to him and they should be to us. That's right. Uh, Getting the scriptures into the vernacular is worth dying yep. for. Yep. Uh, amen. Well, Michael, on a much maybe lighter note, forgive me, I haven't read this chapter yet. I'm eager to just because I'm a coffee lover. What are you doing in chapter 37 here? I don't know this man. Yeah, the coffee, the man. coffee man in South. Yeah. James Jones. Who's James well, Jones? Well, James Jones was a church planter, but he also had a coffee house. And so you. Well, I like that already. I love that church. <laughs> he used coffee. his coffee house kind of as a headquarters for planning to pl uh, plant a church in, on the south side of the Thames. And in time, his coffee house came, became the place where uh, Baptist pastors in London would have recourse. They'd have their kind of um, monthly or bi-monthly meetings in his coffee house. And he had rooms. You could rooms you could rent uh, by the hour. And so they would come, you know, a dozen of pastors, and they'd rent them and uh, do the, the business of their ministerial association in his coffee house. And That's great. It's, oh, it's great, yeah. I love that. What what air? What what years are we? Looking uh, at we're here? looking at this, uh, the sixteen uh, seventies. Well, sixteen eighties, sixteen nineties. Okay. And uh, at the end of the seventeenth century, coffee coffee came into England. I think the first coffee house in England is around the sixteen fifties, and the first one is in London. But there's a very famous one in and sorry, the first one is in Oxford. But there's a very famous one in London that goes back to this period. It's not it's not James Jones's. Um, and it's still in existence. Wow. Yeah, at least at least on, on the site. It's not it's not necessarily um, the uh, same uh, kind of. Um, I, I don't. It's not a continuous ownership, but it's on the site where the coffee house was. Yeah. I love this, Michael. The things people don't realize they're going to get in the weekly historian. You've got to get this book for things like that. We've got young people listening. To this young pastors right now saying. Here's an idea for the church plant. We got to tie it into a coffee house, <laughs> and uh, we'll call it the—I don't know—the uh, the James Jones blend. I mean, there'll, there'll be something there we could call it. Well, and the other good uh, thing too for for anybody who's involved in um, ministry at any level, Sunday school, preaching, uh, teaching, Christian schools. Um, th this 
these little they're snippets of history that you can use and i you know i i'm at the point i can't stand listening to sermons and you get these examples bro and you know the guy's made it up <laughs> to fit what he wants to say and i'm thinking like why don't you find something real instead of some <laughs> story you know it sounds hokey right. because there is so much in history we don't need to yep. make it up you don't need to make it up to illustrate principles of the word of god i mean the whole of church history is illustration of it so this may give you a give you some ideas Beads Podcast is in partnership with h and &E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.